Welcome again to City Life. I know it, you're probably thinking, could you say any more about the business meeting? The answer is yes. We are actually, uh, I don't know if you know Chuck and Penny Jordan. They go to our Newport News campus. They've been going there for some time. If you went to the men's retreat, Chuck preached that first night there, that amazing sermon that was pretty unforgettable. Uh, Penny ministers up there. They are being voted in as elders at the business meeting. So that is a huge step for our church. So just to reiterate what David said, this is more than numbers. It's, it's vision for each person that calls City Life home. Really, it's momentum for each one of us that calls City Life home. So just to reiterate that and tell you that be there so we can put in that vote and make Chuck and Penny elders for the church as we are one church in two locations. So they'll have a voice to what we do at City Life. But here at City Life Suffolk, we've been in our own little series called Myth Busting. And we've been talking about some of the, the you can call them churchy cliches, uh, maybe even urban legends that make their home within the church, and we say back and forth. But they do more sometimes than just make themselves at home. Sometimes they legitimately do harm and they do damage. So we spoke last weekend a little bit about the, the Trojan War. We mentioned the movie Troy and, and some of the things that happened within it, but we really didn't mention uh, the Trojan horse, which was this ultimate sneak attack by the Greeks on the Trojans. Now, they understood in Trojan culture, horses were sacred to that culture. So they made a giant, hollowed-out Trojan horse. They made it out of a, also a tree that Trojans considered sacred. So they took all these things that the Trojans considered sacred, you know, snuck a little guys up in this hollow horse. The rest of the Greeks took off, made it look like they retreated. And so the Trojans see this, and they think, man, all these sacred items, a horse made of these sacred, the sacred wood, and, and, and they take it in as an offering inside their city, and the rest is history or, I guess, mythology, right? <laughs> but I mention all that because as we've been in this series, we've seen how Satan uses half-truths like Trojan horses. He takes what we consider sacred, right? Rightfully so, the very word of God. And either he takes it out of context or he slightly twists it and distorts it. And we take it in and we let it in our heart and he's able to sow discord. He's able to sow hurt and lies. And he does, again, take what's sacred and twist it, kind of like a Trojan horse. Some of them sound right and correct because they're literally words right out of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at judge not lest ye be judged and how we adopt that because it's straight, it's the words of Jesus Christ. And some of the others, they just sound, they just sound right because they sound plain churchy, right? God will never give you more than you can bear. You're never safer than when you're in the center of the will of God. And these, these quotes seem harmless, but when we take what's off base and make it foundational to our faith, it can do great harm. The verse that we've looked at again and again is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, a little leaven, a slight inclination to error, leavens the whole batch. It perverts the whole concept of faith and misleads the church. So the question we've been asking here in light of this verse is how many of our missteps are because we're being misled by misconceptions? How many of our headaches in life are because we've let in these half-truths into our heart? And how many heartaches are we handing out because we're saying these things to other people. Uh, God will get, never give you more than you can bear. Or, or, or God's love is colorblind. These ones that we've looked at. And as we looked at in our intro and we'll reference again tonight, he, Satan used half-truths in the garden to, to get Eve, Adam and Eve to partake in the fruit and ultimately derail humanity. That's why Paul said, as we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, 
He says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Why would he say this? In verse 4, he says, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. And as we've talked about, part of our, our issue in today's culture is so many of us have a, a copy and paste theology or a copy and paste faith where our beliefs are made up of a mashup of of Bible quotations, verse images, sermon clips, shared media, and we kind of take bits and pieces and we construct our faith from that. But the issue is we have so many in our culture, in the church, that read verses, know verses, but haven't read and don't know their Bible. We've talked about the statistics again and again where 30% of American Christians will never read their Bible from cover to cover. 82% never open their Bible outside of church, which just means they're plain not opening their Bible. And what's happening as a result is we miss the greater content and context of Scripture. And because of this, we make ourselves susceptible to half-truths that can hurt us. Because, again, some come straight from Scripture. We looked a couple weeks ago at don't judge. Right? Those are the words of Jesus Christ. But in that same breath, he goes on to say much more about judging. Again, the New Testament has almost 150 more verses about judging. But when you have a quote-unquote, copy and paste faith. You just take don't judge, adopt it, and keep it moving. And tonight's verse is something similar. And we're going to turn to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. I'm actually going to pull it up on the screen. I'm going to read it from there. It's the NIV version. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And Paul's writing to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, this church that he's leading. And he tells Timothy, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And he goes on. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. Congrats. I didn't hear any men saying amen in the middle of that passage. Well done. But you know, like those trees that were cut down to build the Trojan horse, there have been a lot of trees cut down to print pages after pages after pages of, of commentary and different takes on what this passage means. Because this passage in 1 Timothy 2 and another very similar passage in 1 Corinthians 14, they've been taken on face value by many to mean that women should have no platform in church. Uh, they shouldn't teach in church. They shouldn't minister in church. Their ministry should be elsewhere. Their ministry is relegated to elsewhere. But so much of this passage that we just read, you read it and it just feels off, right? You maybe think, huh, how? Why? You start asking questions. And the reason we're in this series is so I can tell you those questions aren't always bad. Matter of fact, sometimes those questions are good because they're not due to a lack of faith in God. They're not due to a lack of faith in God's word. They're due to a love for truth. So we won't settle for half-truths or, or, or take something the wrong way, misteach it, misapply it, misunderstand it, and cause missteps. So the same way we talked about the Bereans in Acts 17 took Paul's teaching said they were eager and enthusiastic and open-minded, and they held it up to Scripture. 
to see if it was true. When we come across these scriptures in the Bible and we think, huh, that seems off. We should ask questions and we should hold it up to the, the content and context of scripture to see what scripture says about it. Again, as we saw with do not judge, taking a verse and running with it without greater content and context can be highly problematic. That's what I want to do tonight with this passage. But a couple uh, prefaces before we dig in. First, it's funny, I was talking to Carrie. She's smiling right now. She's looking at me. It, it seems like you could just knock this out in 30 minutes, no problem. This is a big bite to chew. We're going to dig into 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, I could preach on 1 Corinthians 14, another passage that's similar. Or I could go through the Bible and, and dig into profiles of different women that God uses profoundly in Scripture. Originally, my plan when I wanted to do this series was just to look at, I believe it's pronounced Huldah, in 2 Kings 22. This, this seamstress prophetess who when Josiah is king and they find the Scripture in the temple, they're like, what do we do? He's like, go to the seamstress. This woman who hears from God, knows God's will, and she leads them in this revival. So we could go all different ways with this, and uh, you could definitely keep digging after tonight. So just to recommend two books, two books that I've read over the past few months that are good, because trust me, there's some books on this that are just plain dry, <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend them from the pulpit, but these are good. Fashion to Rain by Chris Vallotton and God's Women Then and Now. It's by Deborah Gill and Barbara Cavanis or something. God's Women Then and Now and Fashion to Rain. If you want to read up on this, study it more. That's one preface. Second, there are leaders of churches, pastors, ones I respect, ones I've learned from that would disagree with a lot of what I say tonight, right? And, and two things. One, they're smarter than me, right? I'm humble enough to admit that some of these folks that believe different than me, yeah, they, they're probably smarter than me. And two, we'll see them in heaven, right? This is one of those things. So often in our call-out culture, this outrage-addicted culture, we'll see uh, somebody that believes a little different than us, and it's, we'll start shouting heresy, false teacher, antichrist, all kinds of crazy things on social media. This ain't that. But I'll stand for tonight's teaching because there are also many people smarter than me that will stand on this teaching, and because it's important. Because to misteach and misunderstand and misapply this text has drastic and significant effects on the church. Because we put a ceiling on the calling of half the church. And as a result, we miss out on bringing heaven here to the best of our collective corporate ability. And we miss out on filling heaven to the best of our collective corporate ability. But last preface, and then we'll jump in. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, it's in Psalm 101. It says, my daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. What does that have to do with tonight? Not a whole lot. That's just a very cool verse. Reminds me of like, it sounds like Spider-Man. It sounds like Batman. And when you think of, uh, of these superheroes watching over this city and trying to ferret out the wicked, and you think of Batman. He has his, his, his belt, his utility belt. He's got the batarangs. He's got the, the, the rebreather. He's got all kinds of cool stuff. The women are looking at me like I'm crazy. He's got a, a belt with all kinds of tools on there. Night vision goggles, right? You look at Ephesians 6. It talks about the armor of God. The belt is what? It's a belt of truth. And I believe that we, there should be tools on our belt as believers that as we navigate God's word, we're able to rightly divide the word of truth and recognize what are half-truths that hurt us and what are full truths that truly, when we understand them, will set us free. So tonight maybe you're thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me, right? This doesn't directly affect me. Maybe you're a male or you're a female that doesn't feel like you're ever going to lead a life group or preach, lead whatever. This is about adding to your toolkit. This is for everybody. 
Tonight is about adding to your belt of truth so that you can avoid half-truths that hurt. You don't end up, like Paul said in Corinthians, just believing anything that anybody says to you. So you can dodge misunderstandings that lead to misapplication and missteps. But to start, as we said in week one, when we come across a, a, a something that makes us question, right? Something that we think might be a half-truth, might be a myth, what do we do? We hold it up to the totality of Scripture and hold it up to life. And first, I want to hold up this passage tonight to the greater content on the subject throughout Scripture. And this is especially important with this subject because people who point to this passage in Timothy and 1 Corinthians 14 as normative for the church will say that anything else in Scripture is an exception to that norm. So we have to ask the question carefully, considering the content of Scripture, what's truly the norm and what's truly the exception? So I want to look at this matter throughout Scripture and you could just do a mad blitz through Scripture. You could look at Deborah in Judges. You could look at Miriam, the prophetess. And, and again, Holda, you could look at her, the, this seamstress prophetess. who I, I wanted to look at her because she's on the front line. She works with her hands. And yet God spoke to her and used her to spark a revival. And Miriam and Holda are among at least ten women recognized in the Bible as prophets. And that's pretty astounding because that's even higher than priests in the hierarchy. And if you were to, with all these prominent women, right, that are speaking throughout Scripture, God's using in Scripture, uh, if you were to, to truly believe that men should never sit under their revelation or impartation or, or, or their teaching, you'd have to remove parts of your Scripture if you're a male because there, there's women speaking in Scripture that God uses. But I want to dial in on the Bible's content in three areas because, again, you could go everywhere. We've only got but so much time. I want to look at creation. shows us God's intent. Jesus, God among us, and then Pentecost, which is the Holy Spirit's coming and the birth of the church. And it's because in each of these three moments, because they're so key in the church's history and they're so key in what God does amongst his people, it shows his divine intent for the church and it shows his divine intent for humanity. Because if you read your Bible, it doesn't take long to realize that throughout the rest of the Bible, God sometimes tolerates things that are far from his ideal in the fallen world in order to over time mold and transform his people and deliver them from that. For instance, we see from creation in Genesis with Adam and Eve, through the commands at Sinai, through Jesus' teaching that God's will is for monogamy, right? One man, one woman, husband and wife. But we see God working through polygamous cultures where it was the norm. We see the same with slavery, God working within systems that had servitude and slavery within them in order to eventually overcome those things, right? I think we realize and we should realize that their presence in Scripture is descriptive. It's not prescriptive, right? It's not prescribed for us. A lot of the Bible is, is more documentary telling us what's happening than commentary on what should be. Now, we believe that the Old Testament, can, God can reveal to us his truth through it, right, through these historic uh, passages in Scripture, but they're descriptive, not prescriptive. But then we come to women's position in society under men. The history of the world and the history of the world that's present in the Bible is a male-centered one, from culture to religion. Yet unlike polygamy or unlike slavery where we see God clearly pulls us from that to his original intent, so often we'll debate whether it's right to move on from the norm that we see in culture. But again, anyone, as you pay attention cover to cover in Scripture, we see that even amidst cultural brokenness and the fallenness of the world, that God is in the business of patiently restoring his creation to its original intent, including 
gender and gender roles. So to look at creation, right? If you've been in church for a while, you're familiar, right? God creates man and woman in his image. Probably not speaking to two eyes, a nose, two ears, and a mouth, things I'm trying to teach. Rise, right? Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. We're talking uh, compassion. We're talking uh, intelligence, imagination, creativity, leadership, all these, his heart, where we're in his image. But you know, you read scripture, and so often the pronouns used for God are, are he, him, and his. And, and as you look at scripture, it's rightfully so. But I think sometimes we can cling to this idea that's flawed, that God is a man. God's not a man. He's not a woman. He's not a human. We were created in his image, not the other way around. Yes, we call God our father, right, our heavenly father. Again, rightfully so. But I remember studying for the Holy Spirit series, and, all, and the word in Hebrew for the Holy Spirit is feminine. Right? Do you know El Shaddai means many-breasted one, right? Awkward to say from the pulpit, but it's true. But again, <laughs> this isn't to project us onto God, but it's to recognize, again, men and women are created in God's image, both. All humans are made in his image. And this should project dignity and honor on both genders. And we realize that to reduce, demean, strip dignity from one is to devalue the image of God that he's given us. But referencing creation in our passage tonight in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says Adam was created first. And some have used this and the order in creation to apply this teaching that, that there's a hierarchy based on gender. But then you look at creation, like Adam was created before Eve, yes. But animals were created before Adam, right? Adam wasn't called to be subjected under animals. Actually, Adam and Eve were supposed to be over all that came before them. Genesis says Eve was created after Adam as a partner suitable for him. Now, for us in our culture, suitable sounds appropriate. So God wanted a partner that was appropriate for Adam. He had a lot to get done, a lot to do. He had to name all these animals, all these tasks and jobs. So we probably needed somebody to help him and serve him. But no, the word suitable in Hebrew means equal and corresponding to. And we see this definition in action when God calls them to co-reign. And what am I talking about? You look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. It says, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to Adam, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. No, he said to them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, filling the earth was going to take both of them because of biology 101. I don't need to get into that. Ruling the earth was going to be no different. It was both of them. Adam and Eve created to co-reign. God's original intent was expressed in Eden, and it's clear his intent was equality. Existing together to co-reign much in the same way the Trinity does. As, as little as we can understand the Trinity, we see this. Men and women are beautifully different. Genders are beautifully different, unique in their own ways, and yet they are equal in value and worth. Any gender hierarchy where one is placed above the other in worth and dignity wasn't present in God's original intent. It was a product of the fall. It's only after the fall where we see man would rule over their wives. And side note, but men take note. In our flesh, without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, we're wired to lead our wives poorly, to dominate her, to treat her like a slave instead of a wife. We got to lean into the Holy Spirit. Let God work in us, Jesus work in us, so that we can love our wives, as it says in Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church, as they submit to us. That's a, another sermon for another day and a good one. But 
Men take note of that. <laughs> but as a result of the fall, men and women were no longer equals who co-reigned. Man and woman would wrestle for control. And in the broader scope of our society as we see throughout history, and as God says in the curse, right, men would rule over, diminish their role, their purpose, and their destiny. But you know, Paul says in Galatians that Jesus redeemed us from the curse. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement. But many would operate as if women should still live under the shadow of their curse, diminished in their role, their purpose, and their destiny. But you know, before Jesus went to the cross to redeem us from the curse, he lived a life that showed us his heart. He lived a a life that showed us his heart for women, their dignity, and, and their destiny. And it's the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus did that Paul points to throughout his epistles. So is Paul then saying in 1 Timothy 2 that we read that Eve's sin couldn't be forgiven and her role not restored? But let's look at this life and ministry of Jesus that Paul championed in the Bible points to. I want to look at his disciples because many would point to the 12 disciples as evidence that Jesus clearly wanted men to, to lead, right? But those 12 represented the 12 tribes of Judah the full restoration of Israel. And we see in Luke 8 that in the broader scope of his disciples, in Luke 8, the first verses of Luke 8, that there were women present within his disciples. And it's just really verses and a couple chapters after that where Jesus sends these same disciples out, 70 of them, to, dare I say, teach his message of repentance and salvation. Dare I say, reveal that to the people that they were sent out to. Then you look at this teaching, his message. You know, this was a culture where uh, Jewish girls couldn't go to school to learn to read and write. Some rabbis thought that it was wrong to teach them spiritual truths, but Jesus taught them. Jesus would intentionally teach in the outer court where women could be present. And among his teachings and his revelations, like you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what he says about divorce, what he says about adultery within the Sermon on the Mount, was entirely countercultural and challenged the way that women were treated in that society. But you know what I'd never realized fully until I started studying for this sermon is just the balance in Jesus' teachings and the balance in his parables. You can see that he wanted to speak to men and he wanted to speak to women. Like when he compared the kingdom of God not just to a seed that a male farmer might plant, but he also compares it to yeast that a woman might mix into dough. And when teaching about those lost in sin, he compares uh, the lost one to a sheep that a male shepherd may lose, but then he also compares it to a coin that a woman loses. When he teaches about justice, yes, he teaches about the Pharisee and the tax collector, but then he also teaches about the persistent widow before the judge. You see an incredible balance, and on and on again, we see Jesus wanted to dignify women and teach women and speak to them. Then you look at just revelation in the Gospels. The woman at the well was the first person to hear Jesus make the clear statement that he was the Messiah. She became the first evangelist. In the Gospels. The women at the tomb were the first to find out that he had risen and and became the first to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were the same women that received Jesus' intentional assignment to instruct the disciples to go to Galilee because that's that's where he was going to meet them. All of this happens in a patriarchal culture that wouldn't have accepted a woman's testimony in court, right? Yet he used women as witnesses. And you look through all the red letters of the Gospels, all of Jesus' ministry and his words, women are not once subordinated or set aside. Again and again, he ushers them to a place of value. And then you get past the Gospels. Again, you get to Pentecost, church's birthday, the turning point in eternity. It's the new era of the church, the new era of the Holy Spirit, right? In it, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2, where it says that God's sons and daughters will prophesy. 
It says that servants, male and female, would do the same, prophesy. Women were present at Pentecost amongst those 120 people that the Spirit fell on and prophesied. And then a book later in Romans, in Romans 16, Paul writes, and we see that there were women operating in these gifts and operating within the church. Romans 16, I love the book of Romans. Romans 16 is like Paul signing off and he's giving people shout outs. And uh, amidst all those people are some pretty amazing women. First among them is Phoebe. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chentre. I'm going to go with that. Deacons, we see in the book of Acts, were a response to, like, the church in Acts was growing like crazy. We're talking thousands of people being added. They needed leaders, right, to, to walk in authority and influence. And that's what deacons were. In 1 Timothy 3, we see that they must be well-respected, have integrity. And it appears, if you read it, the NIV translation, be men. But then I love, if you keep reading 1 Timothy 3, your Bible's probably the same way. It says their wives, asterisk, go to the bottom of the page, deaconesses, right? The women deacons should be like this. Maybe you're thinking, well, how do you know which one it is, right? You look at Romans 16, we see an example right here in Phoebe of a deaconess. You look at Priscilla, she's listed in equal status with her husband when they're called my co-workers in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 5 of Romans 16, greet also the church that meets in their house. So these were leaders, pastors, shepherds of a church in their home, co-pastoring much the way you think of Pastor Fred and Pastor Vanessa in Newport News and, and how they're leading that church. They were leading this church in their home. And lastly, you see Junia. It says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, apostles were among the highest level of leadership. These were mover and, movers and shakers. These were church planners. These were pioneers of the faith, beginning new works. And it's funny, apparently it's so unbelievable to some of the translators who translated this because there's a couple translations where Junia is translated Junius, the, the male version of the name. It's like it, it blowed people's minds that much that there could be among the apostles a female. We haven't even close to exhausted the content of the Bible on the matter, but when we now come to 1 Timothy, we have to ask, is Paul contradicting himself? Is the Bible contradicting itself? But I once heard it put this way. There's 40 authors who wrote the Bible over 1,500 years in several countries, in several cultures, and only one man and one voice seems to restrict women from leadership, and it's Paul. So we have to ask, again, what is the norm and what's the exception? Because if we just looked at, you could ask that of Paul's life. What's the norm and what's the exception? Because it appears that there's, there's both. So then that raises the question, what's the context of 1 Timothy 2 that creates this exception? And so, again, this is where we're going to add to our tool belt. When you look at the context of 1 Timothy 2, this is useful in reading all of Scripture. That's what's... What am I reading? What's the genre? Is it history? Is this laws being passed down? Is it a parable Jesus is teaching? Is it a proverb? Is it a psalm? Is this coming to the, the listener as a letter, a prophecy, again, a parable, or something else altogether? Paul's epistles are letters written to specific churches in specific situations. And within them, you will see theological statements. This is universal. This is the way things ought to be within these epistles. But you'll also see historical statements. This is the way things are. And then you'll see corrective statements. Man, read 1 Corinthians. First few chapters of that, you get some corrective statements. Since things aren't the way they ought to be, here's correction. 
So often when we read the Bible, we rush to the here and now and miss the then and there. These are letters, again, written specific instructions to a specific church and a specific culture. And we get in trouble when we take situational counsel and apply it to universal circumstances. Because these texts apply culturally to who Paul was writing to. It addressed confusion. It cleared up confusion. But when you go to apply it universally, so often it creates confusion. So what's the situation in 1 Timothy 2 that Paul is giving counsel to? Well, Timothy, again, he's in Ephesus. And he's leading the church there. And an important question, and you'll see why in a second, is how did this church start? How did this church come to be? And we see in Acts chapter 18 that Ephesus was founded by Paul as he worked with Priscilla and Aquila, right? Her and her husband. These two leaders we see in Romans 16. And when Paul left, in Acts 18 he moves on. Priscilla and Aquila stay back in Ephesus to pastor that church in their home. Raise up disciples. Build the church. In Acts 18, we actually also see Priscilla and Aquila bring in a young man by the name of Apollos to disciple him, to teach him, to, to direct him. Because he, he had an anointing, but he needed to learn. So under the approval of Paul, in that same city that Paul is writing to in Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila teach this young man Apollos. And it seems obvious. How could a, a woman who had been in the faith for decades not be qualified to teach a, a new believer? But that's what some would say based on 1 Timothy 2. When we look at historical context, right, the historical context of this church in Ephesus that Paul's writing to, this church Paul's writing to would have known of Priscilla's role pastoring the church in Ephesus, which means they, they would have realized this is not a once and for all statement, mic drop statement that we just walk away from. But then you can ask the question, what's Ephesus like? Like how are things in Ephesus? Both Ephesus and Corinth, again, the two main passages that, that many will point to uh, on this subject are two locations that Paul's writing these two passages about women and leadership. There were cults that worshiped female gods. Now, in Ephesus, it was Artemis, the, the goddess where the temple to her was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a big deal. Uh, we see in Acts, I believe it's 19, that, that the worship of Artemis in that culture was so profitable, it affected the economy. When Paul was trying to get people to no longer worship Artemis and worship Jesus Christ, the one true God, they got so upset because the, the economy could crash. People were going to be out of jobs because the worship of Artemis was so prolific. And our archaeologists would say that there were some 15 women who served as high priestesses in this worship. And these, these religions taught that, that mankind came from the great mother, Artemis. And she was the goddess of fertility that protected women in childbearing. Not just that, the ancient historian uh, Tertullian, I believe I said that right, who lived from 160 A.D. to 220 A.D., he also identified false teaching within the Ephesian church as an early emerging form of Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostic heresy believes that spiritual things are good, but physical and the physical world and material things are evil. And to some Gnostics, childbearing itself was frowned upon. So even just based on those two facts, all of a sudden that really, really random verse about being saved through childbearing, what does that mean? We'll get back to that. All of a sudden you get a little clarity based on context. But stepping back and taking in all of this context, you realize first with Ephesus, the city, the culture, and, and everything it was speaking to these, these people that were trying to follow Jesus, you realize it is a breeding ground for false teaching and heresy. If you didn't watch your doctrine and your life closely, as Paul recommends to Timothy. And secondly, you look at the history of the church with Priscilla 
and we realize that it's, it's likely that Paul's beef with the teaching in Ephesus isn't that it's coming from a woman, but it's because she's teaching false doctrine. It's heresy. And you can go from the context in Ephesus to the Greek text, and it supports this in a few ways. And again, this is going deeper than usual, right? But let's go there. You look at the tense. Paul is using the present tense and not what's called the aorist tense in, in Greek, which is a unique tense. So it could, and some say should read, at this present time, I'm not permitting, and not, I'm not permitting, implying I never will, I never have, and it's a, a statement for all time. It's the present tense. You look at tr the translation of some words, like authentine. It's where we get the, the words in English, authentic and author from. The word translated authority, it's not one commonly used in the New Testament, but we see in other writings by church fathers that when they speak to God's role in creation as the author of creation, this word is used. So again, some would say that the translation might more properly read that I don't allow women to teach or present themselves as the author of man, which again makes sense when you realize that Paul is addressing a culture where Artemis was the author of man and, and the it was elevated in that way. You realize that Adam coming before Eve, it wasn't to demean women, it was to correct false teaching. Then you look at pronouns, last one. He uses a singular pronoun throughout these verses. So it's led many to conclude that he's telling Timothy, he's challenging Timothy, look, this woman, singular, is teaching false doctrine, right? You need to step up and, and challenge her and, and correct her teaching. And this provides context for the learning that Paul prescribes, right? Let the woman learn. And when she has learned, like Priscilla was, right, she can teach and she can impart and she can lead. He's applying a universal truth that applies to all leaders, right? You've probably heard leaders are readers, right? I've heard you got to import in order to impart, right? If you want to teach, make sure your life, again, and your doctrine are straight. He's saying, look, let her learn. But he's not saying that women should never impart, never teach, never have authority. Again, to say something like that would be an exception to Scripture, including Paul's own letters. Not a slow the pace, right? Galatians 3.28, the same verse we looked at when we dealt with race, being colorblind a few weeks ago, where it says, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the new covenant the new reality based on Jesus and the work of the cross. It's God's intent restored again. And as we said in the sermon on love being colorblind, right, we aren't called to be blind to the unique beauty of race, and we're not called to be blind to the unique beauty and differences within gender. But we are called to do away with the hierarchies that we would create that elevates one over the other in that list. Male and female, again, they're different in function and beautifully so, Right? yet they're equal in value and worth. Any hierarchy that elevates one over the other gets obliterated at the cross where everybody is on evil gro even ground needing grace. But in our fallen world, cultures again and again will pigeonhole, discriminate, or, or deal with people based on these three things, race, class, and gender. See it again and again in history. And we see in Paul's letters that there are cultural situations. We see it in Scripture where certain restrictions were tolerated for a time. But the work of the church should always be against the discriminating and the diminishing based on race, class, or gender. Because that's what we do when we want to be the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. But too often, the church gets comfortable and operates in the broken cultural norms. This is how you had clergy centuries ago who co-signed on slavery. How you had a guy named Cotton Mather, a prominent figure. He like, you know, Stephen Furtick, all those people get shared on Facebook. He was a prominent figure in the church during slavery who taught the ideal that racial hierarchy and there was inequality in body while insisting that the dark souls of enslaved Africans would become white when they became Christians. It's history. It's wild, but it's there. When cultural norms eclipse God's heart, the world suffers for it. Again, the church in many ways still operates with this hierarchy with men and women. And too often, the church gets comfortable with the cultural norm rather than returning to God's ideal. And this is why the validation of women in this church and the church is it's worth an entire weekend to me. Because this is the work of God's kingdom coming and ushering his kingdom and his church and God's creation to its intent. And men, again, side note, listen up. To, to validate women and elevate women doesn't invalidate you. All right, so often in our culture, when you're in the majority, newsflash, I'm a male, I'm Caucasian, I'm in a lot of majorities. So when, when we see a, a, a movement, a simple movement, right, for, for women's rights, or we even see a hashtag, Black Lives Matter, so often we, we flinch because we think there's so much pie to go around. If they get a bigger slice, I get a smaller slice. Look, I lived this reality as a kid. My brother is three and a half years younger than me, but over a half foot taller than me. He ate a stupid amount of food. My mom could bake her tail off, pies, cookies, breads, all that. I knew that there was a very short expiration date once he got his hands on it. Like, there was limited amount of pie, and if I wanted some, I better get there early. And this doesn't even mention my sisters who were left in the dust, right? This was just me and my brother, right, because there was a limited amount. But this is this picture of a pie, it's a, a myth that we need to bust about power or influence, that there's the total amount of influence in a culture, society, or context. It's a locked and fixed quantity. It's not accurate, especially in the church, because as the church grows, the church's influence grows. Right? So, so as women teach and equip others, the whole church, capital C church, is built. So we don't relegate or suppress people based on race, class, or gender. Instead, we unleash them to walk in God's calling because that increases the pie. It doesn't monopolize the pie. It increases the pie. This is why when I see another church, another pastor thriving, you know, I don't think that's competition. No, that's increasing the pie, right? We're building God's church, building God's kingdom, and I don't see that as threatening, right? But to close, again, we hold it up to Scripture, all of Scripture, and then hold it up to life. You look at the the entirety of this passage, it talks about dressing modestly, not having your hair braided, right? Now, <laughs> Dustin just looked at Caitlin like, oh, you busted, right? Not wearing gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, right? Few take this as a timeless command for all time. Yet, we take the next sentence as such when it says women should learn with full submission. Another example of this, uh, kind of just taking and, and choosing. I don't see a lot of people who champion the verse that uh, women will be saved through childbearing. Probably for multiple reasons, right? <laughs> My wife hasn't born a child. Does that mean that if she passed away tonight, she's not going to heaven, like she hasn't been saved? Right? You look at Ephesians 2, and you were saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by anything we do. So what does this mean, right? Women are saved through childbearing. All right, when you're a youth pastor, you get these questions, right? What on earth is Paul talking about? 
I was there. But as I stated before, Paul sprinkles singular pronouns in this text. And I don't know, it depends on what translation you have. Um, the NIV in many translations, the NIV I have right here says women, plural, will be saved through childbearing. But of course, there's a nice little asterisk. And you go down to the bottom of the page and it says, the Greek, she. So I don't know why some translators were like, oh, let's put women when the Greek says she. Many translations, the King James Version, the ESV, have she as it's reflected in the Greek, the original text. So who is the she that is speaking to who's saved through childbearing? The woman who's being spoken of right before that, Eve. Amidst the curse of Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What many consider a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ defeating the enemy. So Eve would bear children so that through her offspring, the promise of the crushed serpent would be brought to fullness by the work of Jesus Christ. Now we, men and women, can learn from Eve. That even if you've just been busted, you just stumbled, or maybe others have even sinned against you and you feel down and out like you're so far from your destiny, continue in faith and love and holiness, and eventually you too will overcome. You too will taste salvation. But we know, as we talk about so often here at City Life, we're not called to just kill time, sit on the couch, and spin our thumbs until we get to heaven. No, God has callings and destinies and purpose for each person in this room, male or female, black or white, right? Whatever class, race, gender. But if the worship team could come up, you know, I was talking to a couple people about podcasts that deal with this subject because I wanted to listen to uh, female pastors, what their experience was, not just go in blind. And I was listening to one, and, and the, the, what is a, moder- like a podcast moderator, whoever, the host asked her, you know, did you ever question your calling in light of what the college you were going to said, in light of what other pastors said? And she said, no, I never questioned my calling. She never questioned the fact that God had called her, but the question she often returned to is, where is there a place for me? Where is there a place for me? Those words hit. And I would say that if that's you tonight, that's you tonight based on gender. Maybe you don't know where there's a place for you based on race or class, these things in Galatians. Maybe it's based on age, feel too old, too young. Maybe it's based on uh, whatever it may be, marital status. These things were, is there a place for me? The church doesn't always get it right, but Jesus Christ did. And it's so wild to me, Amanda closed worship. And I wanted to hit on two invitations that, that Jesus had. And Jesus gave for people of, again, every race, every gender, every class, everybody, two invitations. And and the first is the one she closed worship with. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's in Matthew 11. And I share that because some of these female pastors, leaders, felt like they had to work twice as hard to be recognized. Or they had to somehow change who they were to be approved of by the people they would speak to. Jesus says none of that. Jesus says, I've done the work. Come rest. Come find your identity in me. Find who I created you to be. Maybe you need to respond to that invitation and revelation tonight. Stop trying to work twice as hard. That's another sermon for another time. Maybe Maybe it's for the first time ever. You're feeling Jesus, God, call you unto himself through the Holy Spirit. Your heart's beating out your chest like it did for me years and years ago. 
Maybe you need to respond to that tonight. That's the first invitation. Come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, he'll give you rest. Jesus also says in John 8, though, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Again, he doesn't discriminate based on race, class, or gender. He says, look, you run after my teachings. You hold on to my teachings. You are really my disciples. We're invited to follow him. But disciple means a learner, a student, a follower. That's why Jesus says we have to know the word for it to set us free. We talk about how the full truth sets us free. We have to know it. We have to rightfully hold it in our heart. And he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Maybe you need to respond to that invitation tonight to become a student, a learner, and a follower again of the word of God. You know, we say all the time, don't be a statistic. Don't be one of those statistics. The one that only opens their Bible at church or the one who will never read the Bible in all of its glorious content and context. Talk about 40 authors, 1,500 years, all these cultures, all these countries. But it, it's, it's God's word to us. How could we not read it, champion it, pursue him through it? So if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. But Jesus, we thank you that you didn't just invite us to come. <laughs> you then went to the cross so the veil could be torn so we could truly come. Not just in word or in thought, but no, we can truly come into your presence and experience your love, experience your grace, and experience your mercy. So I pray for those of us tonight that maybe we've been feeling like we had to work twice as hard because of guilt or shame or depression or what we did or what somebody did to us where we feel like I have to, I have to work twice as hard to experience God's love and God's grace. God, I pray that you would wreck that, shatter that, obliterate that through the cross again tonight. That your grace and your mercy, we can never outsend. God, every time we stumble, you're there to meet us again. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of the cross. So Jesus, I pray that we would hear your invitations tonight to come to you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, weary, tired, in that dry season that Amanda was talking about. And God, I pray that you would show us your love again. And God, for those of us that need to respond to the invitation to be disciples, followers, and students of your word, God, I pray that that would be something that we wouldn't just say with a word tonight, God, but we would truly adopt in our lives. Because there are so many half-truths and ways that the enemy would try to slip a Trojan horse into our heart that would derail our, our, our faith, God. But I pray that you would add to our tool belt of truth, God, ways that we can read your word and it would come alive to us in new ways. Be revelation, a prophetic voice to us and our families and our neighbors and the people you put around us. But Jesus, we thank you again that you don't just invite us. You open the door so that we can come. We come to you tonight in our praise and we come to you tonight in our worship. If you need prayer for any of them, any of those responses, the Hiltons are in the back, they would love to pray for you. I'll be right here. I would love to pray for you. But so let's worship.